More than half of all companies globally are family-owned or operated. Family businesses contribute 70% of the world's GDP and account for 65% of jobs. Their voices are important. Their stories must be told. Brought to you by the award-winning publication, Tharavat Magazine. This is the Family Business Voice with your host, Ramya Elagami. Borrowed from my grandchildren. Still reeling from the unprecedented disruption of COVID-19, sustainability is on the collective mind of the global family business community in a way that would have seemed alien only a month ago. According to Dennis Jaffe, author and family office consultant, such upheavals are a potent reminder that family business sustainability is a moving target and hitting that target requires a continuously expanding knowledge base. Crises are an opportunity for growth. There is much to be gained from looking at companies under their third or fourth generation of leadership, centuries-old businesses that have survived similar periods of crisis. Luckily, some of Jaffe's most recent work has involved collating their stories. For more than four decades, Dennis has worked as both an organizational consultant and clinical psychologist, helping multi-generational families engage in best practices to ensure the long-term viability of their enterprises. His latest book, Borrowed from My Grandchildren, The Evolution of Stewardship in 100-Year Families, is an in-depth survey of the factors that contribute to longevity. Enjoy this episode with Dennis. Welcome, Dennis, to the Family Business Voice. We're super happy to have you. After all these years that I've known you, you're finally on the show with us. So welcome. Well, I'm delighted. Uh, I felt so connected over the years with uh, Tharawat and uh, your development that I'm happy to you know, be a more visible part of the team. Yeah, it's amazing. Thank you so much. And we're actually connecting today in quite an odd time. We were just talking before we started this recording, right, that uh, it's the first time in years that you can remember that you're actually not traveling to the next destination. And this is what, of course, COVID has done to many of us. It has literally grounded us, if you will, to the spot, into uh, to our homes. And it's quite a strange situation. And I think before we also start talking a little bit more about the subject matter of today, which is your book, borrowed from your grandchildren, which in this current context actually is a very important work that I highly recommend people uh, read in these times. But before we do so, Dennis, I think it would be wonderful for us to hear from your end how you see the situation evolve and where you are operating and how also family businesses around you have been affected and what kind of reactions you've, you've seen around you. Well, I don't have a good picture because I'm uh, in, in my place and I think all of us are a little bit isolated and um, and information is not flowing the way it uh, we've been used to. Mm. But what I think of about family businesses and, and or as I say family enterprises because a lot of them have sold the business and are partners as a family in, in, in different ways in a broader way than just one business. But um, families are looking and um, in the time of uncertainty they're saying, what resources do we have? What do we have to fall back on? Mm-hmm. And what a family has as a collective is uh, much more than um, an individual or an individual household has. The families that I um, interviewed for my book, and I interviewed 100 global families that were um, 
past the third generation and successful as both families and businesses. These families have resources that are uh, non-financial. They have a, a closeness. They have a shared purpose. They have shared assets. They have entities, um, public entities, uh, charities, foundations, private entities, uh, businesses. They have cash. And all of these are, um, are subject to the family resources where there are a set of values. And, and the mm-hmm. values are about long term. And the values are about not just being me personally as a family, but the idea of family in these businesses is a, uh, is a very flexible one. And people say family, and then they say, well, family includes the families that have worked for our business for generations. Ah, Families include our employees and our staff, because how could we be making profit and these people that have been so dedicated to us, you know, not be a part of it? And if we have a challenge, how can we all meet it together? So I see family um, enterprises as having incredible resources that they can apply to this and the families that that I have been talking to are actively not just um, you know kind of personally involved but getting together and saying what do we want to do to move this forward and there's a real sense of community kind of a caring community emerging so it's such an interesting uh, premise as well Doug we'll talk a little bit more about your findings here as you interview these these family businesses but also this sense of that that collective purpose that has lasted for generations actually allows some of them seemingly to be more proactive in this kind of a crisis situation as opposed to the reactivity that we've seen of course which is like the majority of the cases that we see are just merely reacting right now because the shock of the I think of the global ramifications of this are still is still so so new to many to many businesses. But let's talk a little bit more. Let's take a step back here and talk a little bit more about what made you decide to write your book uh, borrowed from your grandchildren in the first place. Well, there were two things. One um, was that the field was growing, and I'm from the U.S. and I was asking myself, the prescriptions that we have in the U.S. are based on a certain cultural style. Is that something that really um, is relevant to the rest of the world? There are a lot of people claiming you should do this and you should do that. And I wanted to see, uh, are families actually doing this? And and are they experiencing, Mm. what are they doing? Mm. I'm really affected by the kind of research of of looking at best practices. So things like uh, Built to Last, uh, tremendously influential books, where we looked at, at not business failures or business problems, in isolation, but looked at what are successful systems as a whole. And so I wanted to look at positive families and uh, to define positive was very simple. Families that were together as a family and a business over more than three generations that were thriving and continuing to create uh, financial and as we see non-financial wealth and um, that, that had a shared identity. And mm. these were by definition successful. And so I wanted to reach out and I I interviewed family members from 20 countries, 100 families uh, in all, and we're continuing to interview more Mm -hmm. families now. And I asked them what had they done and how had they evolved? Mm -hmm. The other thing I was looking at, and and in, in the literature, people look at businesses. I was saying, I'm looking at businesses, but I'm really looking at families and how families create businesses and stay with them and sell them and move on. And I'm looking at families. And so looking at a family evolving 
there is often um, starts with a large successful business, but then it goes on to several businesses and it goes on to family foundations. And some uh, very often half the families in my study sold the business. So they go on and they evolve in different ways. And I think the, the research that we're doing is our family business is good. Are they bad? Are they successful? Is ignoring the fact that a family enterprise uh, is, is a moving target and yes. it evolves. And each generation faces new problems. And each generation facing problems, when they successfully uh, face the problem and, and do something about it, they create structures, they create practices, they create a family culture that succeeds. And that's what I was looking at, how this evolves. And so it's turned out to be a very um, exciting thing. And, and what I'm writing about is not the family failures and family feuds and family, um, you know, kind of collapse, but but really the families that are strong, resilient, reinventing themselves, dealing positively with, with they, they all have conflict, dealing with conflict, creating impact in the world. And, and this has been a wonderful, wonderful journey. Can you tell us what were the most surprising turns of conversations that you've encountered when you were doing these studies? What most surprised me is there are two qualities of family enterprise I think are really important and make up family enterprise. And one is the owners have a personal relationship. So unlike the owners of a public company or people who are investors, the owners are investors and they certainly want it to be profitable and add value, but they also have other agendas and other values. And so having a set of owners who are related means they have non-financial as well as financial goals. Mm. And the other thing is that because they want to turn this business and, and wealth over to their children and their grandchildren, as the title of my book says, they have a long-term perspective. And so I was really setting out to see these two qualities, shared values uh, beyond just making money and a long-term perspective that family businesses have, have lessons. This is what we say we want to see in capitalism. This is what we want to see is a, a company that makes a profit but doesn't make a profit by um, exploiting and uh, you know doing things that are just in self-interest, but really has a shared interest in, in some broader goals. The thing that I found and, and the foundation of the book that, that is most not surprising to me, but to say it out loud, is that the family members by the second or third generation, they were making wealth. They were creating wealth. They were continuing to create wealth. They were not you know, just living off the, the original wealth. They were making new wealth. But they also said they faced the question, well, we've got more wealth than we could ever imagine, more wealth than we can use. What is it for? And this is a value question. So the family said, what is it for? What do we want to do with this wealth? Mm -hmm. And the answer that they came up with had to do with, we want to meet our non financial goals. And, and the key one that they, they all agreed on is we want to invest and create a great family. And a lot of the book is about what does it mean to be investing and creating a great family? In this current situation, we seem to be paying a debt for the short-termism that has been practiced in capitalism around the world over the last few decades. Why is it that the family business model or this family business or the family values in business have not been able to penetrate through 
that thinking over the last few decades? What was that? And did we really have to come to this precipice now in the 21st century, as you said, to potentially change our outlook? Like what, what is it that you feel like was the main driver and why can't family businesses, I guess, be heard as much as, you know, your GEs and your, those big companies that have been defining the dialogue around management best practice for the last few decades. Like what do you think that is about family businesses that they can't really cut through that noise and make that statement and show? Well, the first thing is, and this is a, a little bit of a stepping up on a soapbox. So I'm saying, I think that business schools in the last half of the 20th century were uh, really premised on rationality and they mm-hmm. were actively opposed to family businesses. So they presented a rational business and they, they said rational self-interest uh, will help us and businesses should, the Milton Friedman approach that businesses are about profitability for the shareholders and nothing else. And they presented an ethic of rationality that, that had no kind of soul and, and respect mm-hmm. for people. And I think now we're seeing the pitfalls of that as the large rational companies we find that that they um, that one of the ra- things about rationality is um, they think it's rational to get short-term profits um, for the shareholders over long-term investment. They say, "Hey, I won't. Inv- I'll sell my shares after I get my dividends and and, and profits out. So um, uh, you know, why look ahead? So there isn't an incentive for that." Does tradition? now get into the way of family business adapting at the speed they're going to have to adapt in order to survive this particular circumstance. Because we now also see that the kind of response that is required now from family businesses is, of course, an extraordinary effort. Many of them are now suffering from, uh, really suffering from the deficiencies they already had, but they they thought they had time to tackle, like lack of governance, you know, lack of digitalization, all of those things. So, it's really quite interesting to see here now. So you were talking about resiliency coming from shared values, shared purpose. But what when the circumstances are this exceptional? Like, can these things that are also anchoring us in tradition and also anchoring us in certain, we're doing things a certain way, uh, can they now be a hindrance to respond in, you know, the, uh, at the speed that is clearly required in this particular situation? That's a complex issue, but it came up a lot in the in the research. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact is that a, that a family is inherently conservative. Family is not designed to change. It's designed to create stability and continuity. So it's hard to change a family. Mm-hmm. Um, but the families um, in the um, in in the study had an approach because they they are also parts of the family that are more innovative. So. Mm-hmm. I talk about a concept that's that I call the generative alliance, which is the value-creating alliance in the family. And it goes like this. There's the older generation, and they have some values. For example, one value of the older generation that's been tremendously important is to not take out all the money from the business, but to reinvest. Mm-hmm. And I think family businesses routinely reinvest more than some public companies. So they haven't been, you know, living off 100% of the profits. They've been living off maybe, um, you know, sometimes 20% of the profits, mm-hmm. which means they've been reinvesting and they have resources in the business. But the innovation is there, there are three groups, interest groups, stakeholder groups that identify in the family. The elders who have control, but they are concerned about the future. Mm-hmm. They're conservative. Yes. But then they've hired business advisors, they've hired non-family executives who are experts who are supposed to 
rationalize and professionalize the business and make mm-hmm. the business more effective. So these are people that have created profitable business. But again, the, these people, because they're beholden to the older generation and their mission is to bring returns to the business, not to be innovative. And they do a little bit of innovation, but they're not the most innovative. But then you have a third resource in the family. And this is where the innovation comes from. That's the new generation, the people Mm -hmm. that are educated all over the world, the people that are seeing the environmental crisis, that are part of the tech response, that see, you know, some of the challenges that are ahead. And the new generation in the family business, they're in an interesting position because they don't have legitimacy. They don't have ownership, but they have a voice because they can walk right in to the leaders and the leaders are their parents and Mm -hmm. say, we want to see this and we want to have social values and we want to invest in the future. And they're the children. Doesn't doesn't always work. Doesn't always work from experience. (laughs) But but the families that are successful are, are open to it and they say, mm. well, let's listen to the ideas. Let's, we're not going to do everything you want. You're 25 years old and you know, you've got to do a little bit of seasoning and a little bit of learning, but we'll listen. And there's a what I call a respectful engagement in the next generation, not giving away the store, but um, the older generation, the business advisors um, and non-family and the next generation have different worldviews and different perspectives And in the successful multi-generational family, you see these three groups working together, accommodating each other, respecting each other, listening to each other. What have been your observations in studying these families when it came to the types of leadership that were required at different stages of the family business story and how the families have successfully adapted to those different styles? Every one of the families um, went through an evolution from a single leader, uh, a very directive, a very, some would say, authoritarian leader, some would say a uh, paternalistic leader, but a leader who, you know, did it all himself, mostly, Mm -hmm. mostly men, to a group of people who were the the successors, and therefore they had to develop skills of emotional intelligence, of Mm -hmm. collaboration of mutual respect. And these are skills that the older generation had no idea of because it was one person. So how could mm-hmm. they how could they value collaboration in the same way? They they were mm-hmm. the deal, the whole deal. So the next generation or the third generation has to have a culture change in the family to collaborative leadership. The other thing we see in these families is that leadership is a process and a dispersed role, not a single role. So even if there's one person running the business, sometimes there are several businesses. Sometimes people are on the board of the business, and then there are people involved in the foundation, and they're on the board of that. There are people that are helping the family and having family meetings. There's a family historian. There's a family person that convenes the family, and very often the family has a family council and a leader of the family council who is the leader of uh, a large organization of the family. Um, And so there are many leadership roles rather than one. There's a lot of things that you address in your book that also are busting the the myths, I guess, that have been pervasive in the family business field. And I think that that's why it makes it a very important book, like, you you know, to be really go deep on a lot of issues that we've been treating very superficially in the field for a long time. I, I entirely agree. 
who is like the, the the biggest target audience that you feel would benefit the most from reading the book today? Like, is there is there a particular generation of the family business that you feel like you know what this this book is really for you, or do you feel like it really it applies across across all ages and and geographies? There are different constituencies that I talked about. It's it's for the older generation of newer family businesses to see what they have to do to build an enduring, sustainable family business. It's for advisors who are working. It's for people that are working for the family in family offices to see how they can develop the next generation. And it's for the next generation to see how they can develop a positive role in the family because it's very often, I think it's the, it's the next generation that create the innovation. So um, in a lot of the families, the next generation They went to a graduate program or a business school program. They went to a conference. They read Sarawat and they get these ideas and they say, hey, we should be doing them. And the family elders say, whoa, what are you talking about? I never heard of that. And mm. they come to the family and, and, and teach the family and educate the family about these things. And then the family begins to get behind them and say, gee, this would be really useful for our family. Let's try this out. So the innovation comes from the younger generation. But I've written to all of the different you know, parts of the families. I mostly tell stories. I don't say, this is what you should do. I say, here's what 100-year families have done. Here's what they do about mentoring. Here's what they do about succession. Here's what they do about governance. Here's what they do about boards. And um, there's just a lot of stories, and families can pick and see which of the stories they resonate with, which ones come out of experiences that they share with the people in the book. And um, they can take these stories and use them as templates for the innovation that they uh, develop in their own families. And a, a wonderful gift it is really to have uh, put this into this uh, into this one book. We're linking the book below this podcast episode for everyone to to right. access easily. These are these are great times to catch up on some reading because whether you like it or not, you're going to have some more time to do that right now. And it's a great time to be reflective. And we were just saying, right, Dennis, it's a great time to enter the age of reason and to hopefully uh, go about things mindfully. And for the family to get together. Since, you know, we're all closeted together to begin to say, well, let, let's begin to plan our strategic plan for emergence and for continuing to occupy an important role in the 21st century. And that, that's what I think families are going to have to do over the next year is to look at an entirely changed world and say, how can we use the values and the, and the resources that we have to really make a difference when that difference is really important to the world? Absolutely. Couldn't have put it better. Thank you so much, Dennis, for giving us this interview. Well, thank you. Thank you. And I look forward to the time when we can, you know, be together and, and um, learn together. But right now I'm, I'm delighted to be you know, part of this, uh, this webinar. Me too. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Family Business Voice. Subscribe to our channels now on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, or Spotify to be notified of our weekly episodes. 